Thank you very much, Jane. And I was going to point out to you that you could probably tell by the absence of sort of mellifluous Welsh tones that I wasn't Hugh Edwards. Uh, as Jane said, he's very sorry not to be able to be with you. Uh, and I am your uh, smaller, inadequate substitute. But uh, that doesn't matter because you're actually here not to hear the chair, but to hear from our fantastic panel. Uh, we've heard from everything uh, academia has to throw at you through the British Election uh, Survey this morning. And this afternoon, we are going to hear from one more academic, well, actually two more, because Anand's on the next panel, but from one more academic, we're moving on to the people who occupy the political space, key political strategists uh, in this session. So be ready with all the questions you want to bombard them with after that. So uh, I'm going to introduce them in the order we will get them to speak in. Uh, which is, first of all, our very own um, Professor Tim Bale, Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe, and in his other life, uh, Politics Professor at Queen Mary London. Then Chris Wilkins, who still says that he is a former advisor to Theresa May. I think he needs another job soon. Well, some but people anyway, say it. But, <laughs> but anyway, so that's Chris, uh, Director of Strategy for Prime Minister and with a lot of interesting things to say in Auntie Selden's May at 10 book, if you want to know a bit about the secret life of Chris Wilkins. <laughs> then Miranda Green, often a star of the FT podcast, often a star on Newsnight, but is the sort of uh, here to represent the Liberal Democrats in our panel as to give an insight into what's going on in the mind of a Liberal Democrat. Ooh. And finally, last but not least, delighted to have Sienna Rogers. Sienna is editor of Labour List and another person who is increasingly sort of uh, used to give a window into the mind of Labour activists. So this is a hopefully going to be a hugely insightful session. We're going to kick it off with Tim setting the scene and then we will go to the, uh, not quite party representatives, but to our party interpreters because uh, I think that's what they probably are. Uh, anyway, so Tim, kick it away. Okay, thank you uh, very much indeed. Um, I'd like to start off um, paying tribute to someone who's over there eating an apple, Matt Bevington, who uh, just, he's over there just eating that apple, because uh, he did a brilliant Twitter thread this morning based on some work that Paula Surridge had done, and that actually ended up saying almost everything that I was going to say in, in this particular session. Uh, so, uh, uh, although he's... Uh, made it rather awkward for me. Uh, I have still decided to turn up because I bought a new suit and uh, because I never turned down uh, a free lunch. But seriously, if you don't follow Matt already, Matt Bevington, uh, do, do follow him on Twitter and obviously follow us, UK and Changing Europe, on Twitter and indeed BES Research uh, on Twitter as well. And if you haven't signed up to our UK and Changing Europe newsletter, um, shame on you and please do so. Uh, anyway, uh, I, as um, Jill has already indicated, uh, am not here to uh, let you into the, the mind or to interpret uh, the Labour Party, the, the Liberal Democrats, uh, or indeed the Conservatives, because we have a great um, panel of people who are happy to do that. So I'm like the kind of third wheel, or indeed the fourth wheel, in this particular uh, panel, uh, a sort of utility player or a jack of all trades, a master of none. But something I do know something about uh, is party membership. So I thought I'd say a little bit about how I think um, party members may have made and are making and will make a difference uh, to the way that these parties uh, will relate to their voters, not just on Brexit, uh, 
uh, although that will form part of what I say, but also in terms of what may happen uh, after uh, the election. So I, I would say party members do make a difference to political parties because to some extent they anchor those political parties in their uh, ideologies and uh, they are capable of constraining political parties and preventing them perhaps from what they should do uh, as rational actors if, if parties can ever be uh, rational actors. So I'm, I'm going to have a look at that, how that's happened in the next three minutes um, in turn. I'll start with the Lib Dems uh, and their policy... Uh, to revoke Article 50 should they become uh, a majority government, which doesn't look too likely uh, <laughs> a few days out from this election, but, but who knows? Stranger things have happened. Well, they haven't really, have they? But anyway, um, <laughs> you've, got, you, you've, got, you've got to say that. But uh, um, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that it was party members who actually pushed the Lib Dem leadership into uh, the promise to revoke Article 50. I think that was a decision made by the leadership, and it seems to have been a decision, according anyway to reports, uh, made by the leadership, because uh, that actually polled quite well um, when they, as it were, field-tested it uh, with voters. But I think you can say that it was certainly facilitated by or enabled by uh, members. I don't think the leadership thought that they would um, encounter much resistance from members, and certainly anyone who was down in Bournemouth uh, in in those sort of heady days in September, uh, including Miranda, actually, will will remember that the membership was very enthusiastic uh, about that. The problem, of course, is that it is a policy that appeals very much to their FBPE or is it FPBE? I can never remember um, core vote, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, it, it uh, seems to me, and through the polling, appeal that much to, if you like, the kind of penumbra of people who the, the Lib Dems need uh, to support them in this election. And, and it does seem to have been counterproductive. Now, on to the, the Conservatives. Um, I think you can certainly say that the Conservative Party membership helped push the Conservative Party from a kind of soft Eurosceptic position to a hard Eurosceptic position, and then from a soft Brexit position to a hard Brexit position, and indeed possibly even to a no-deal Brexit position, as it seemed at one time. And you can also, I think, make the point that the Conservative Party membership effectively deserted David Cameron in his hour of need, as did many Conservative voters, in the referendum in 2016. And, of course, the Conservative Party membership has made a huge difference to the Conservative Party by uh, choosing to elect Boris Johnson rather than any of the other people who um, stood for the leadership. Now, in the short term, uh, this might be a very good thing. Judging from what the opinions poll, poll say at the moment, it does look as if choosing Boris Johnson, and we heard um, some people from the BES uh, in some ways make the same point, um, seems to be working for them. But the question is, what next? What happens um, after the election? If we assume that they win, um, but if Brexit doesn't end up unleashing the potential uh, of the UK, and it ends up you know, being rather less satisfactory, perhaps rather more um, difficult, um, will that actually help the Conservative Party uh, in the long term? It's also the case, I think, that the membership partly by electing Boris Johnson, but, you know, uh, you know um, more generally, um, have pushed the Conservative Party into the position, and we saw this um, from the um, BES uh, people this morning, uh, into a position where, you know, the party has increased its support among poorly educated, ethnocentric, identity conservatives, as, as you might put it. And that's the term used, by the way, in a, in a book that's going to come out next year, 
by uh, Rob Ford and Maria Sobolewska called Brexit Land. So can I just give you a, a kind of heads up for that? An absolutely um, excellent book. Now, uh, that could be a problem given the fact that the UK over the long term is uh, becoming better educated, is becoming less ethnocentric, uh, if you like, and uh, also is becoming more socially liberal. So uh, the Conservative Party might be at a long-term disadvantage there. That said, having said that, uh, personally, I don't think that uh, Brexit is going to be a tangible uh, disaster uh, for the country. It will simply be a case, I think anyway, of growth foregone rather than uh, any uh, more perhaps noticeable uh, impact on the country, at least in, in the short term anyway. Uh, and I'd also have to say, of course, that there is nothing to stop the Conservative Party pivoting back to a different position. I would argue that it has essentially become an ersatz Brexit party uh, since Boris Johnson took over, um, but everything we know about the Conservative Party, and I've, I've up, uh, you know, bigged up some other people, um, so I'll big up something I wrote in, uh, in Bloomberg um, last week uh, about why the Tories are so good at winning. Um, you know, this, we, we have here a party that is perfectly capable of swerving between one alternative and another. And then finally to Labour, very, very quickly, the dilemma is in some senses reversed for Labour. Uh, in the short term, the fact that the, um, the membership has created this party led by Jeremy Corbyn, which is very left-wing, very socially liberal, means that it's very difficult for the Labour Party to kind of reforge that coalition that new Labour uh, forged so um, brilliantly between uh, the classes. And in the short term, that does look as if it's going to cost them uh, this election. So in other words, for the electorate of 2019, it's not the ideal position. But for the electorate of 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, who knows, um, that could be uh, very much a, a market worth uh, tapping into. Um, I think, uh, to, to finish up, uh, that the only way, perhaps, that Labour could have squared that circle between being very socially liberal and very left wing would have been to elect a leader uh, who had more credibility among floating voters and it didn't do that which is why to end I think what happens when and if Labour lose is going to be crucial who they pick as Jeremy Corbyn's uh, successor if they need to pick someone as Jeremy Corbyn's successor I think will determine whether Labour gets crucified or whether sooner or rather than later it will be able to resurrect itself. At the moment, it seems to me, the signs are more towards continued crucifixion rather than short-term resurrection, but let's see. Thank, okay. you. Thank you very much, Tim. So, Miranda, don't feel obliged to go to the lectern, but maybe you would like to reflect a bit, particularly on some of Tim's comments about where an election result, you can pick your scenarios, maybe work through, right, leave the Liberal Democrats and Joe Swinson. Um, okay, well, thank you very much for having me, and um, thank you for the introduction, Jill. I suppose I'm the sort of centrist dad, the centrist mum of the panel, really, um, having had a background in the Lib Dems, but now being a journalist. And I'm very grateful to Tim for reminding me of being in Bournemouth when the Lib Dems announced the Article 50 revoke policy, which they thought was a great... Uh, triumph of strategic thinking and Tim and I pulled a face and we were on a panel where we ended up sort of getting heckled <laughs> by, by a lot of Lib Dems who as he quite rightly says I think had sort of joined the party as a vehicle for their very 
sort of enraged feelings about Brexit. And I, and I agree with Tim. I think this whole role of, 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 of very motivated memberships who may be obsessed with one issue and how they then can distort the thinking of the leadership of a party is really worth a lot more thought for, for, for all the parties. And I agree with Tim. I think that that's a lot of what's, what's happened with the Lib Dems. So here we are in this slightly grim election campaign. I'm enjoying it very much because I like a grim election. Um, and it's looking uh, quite grim for my, uh, my former friends in the, in the Lib Dems. And it, I think it, this also bears sort of examination because, you know, for the last three or four years, people who know about my sort of past association with the party would sort of leap up to me and say, isn't it a great opportunity? Isn't it a great opportunity? Opportunity, you know, because obviously, if you sort of think of it, of it in a sort of one-dimensional way, the fact that you've got a Labour Party that's sort of zoomed off in one direction, and a Conservative Party that's busily zooming off in the other, it looks as if you've got this wonderful sort of fertile territory. But of course, in a general election under first past the post, that's not really the psychology of the voters to just sort of fill a space, because actually that option's not available to you when you're choosing a prime minister. Um, and also the other reason why people thought it was a great opportunity for the Lib Dems, which it still could be, I think, if they stop, stop doing what they're doing at the moment, is, is that of clear, clearly the Brexit vote and this new polarity between the Remain and Leave tribes, uh, you know, has kind of disrupted a lot of assumptions about traditional voting patterns and has sort of intensified the breakdown of traditional party loyalties and, and arguably sort of also accelerated it. So there is a sort of opportunity there for the AN other party. And let's face it, as Tim said, there's this, what was your word, penumbra? Penumbra of floating voters who maybe are not particularly voted, you know, attracted to the idea of signing up hook, line and sinker to a third party, but want a home for their vote when they are sort of repelled by the other two magnetic poles, as it were. So, so there was an opportunity there. Uh, and there are still some sort of upsides, despite the troubles that the Lib Dems have got themselves into in this campaign. One is that, you know, being the clearly pro-European party uh, and identified as such is a sort of defining characteristic. And for a lot of people who are now motivated pro-Europeans inside the uh, British electorate, that is rem that remains attractive. And also, you know, given that Scottish independence is still this kind of live, hot issue... You know, it's not a terrible thing to be able to say we're the party who wants to stay in the EU and in the UK. Um, and I think that sort of Lib Dem unionism as an advantage is, is sort of slightly underplayed in the campaign. Um, but, th but there was also sort of an opportunity under the cover of Brexit, as it were, to kind of repair trust and repair relations, I think, with voters who were really upset about the coalition and who had felt betrayed by that, that decision. I think it's extremely questionable whether they're pulling that off at the moment, partly because Jo Swinson, as a coalition minister, has had to answer a lot of difficult questions about her voting record. I'm really interested that the British election study, is Jane still here? I can't see her. You know, they actually, they actually describe the formation of the coalition as a sort of traumatic event that shifted the political dial, you know, and I don't think the Lib Dems have sort of digested or worked through how they deal with that you know the very existence of a center-left party deciding to go into government with a center-right conservative party was a profound sort of shock to a lot of the Lib Dem voter base and also disrupted of course disastrously the disastrously the traditional anti-Tory tactical voting dynamic which has kept the third party healthy you know since the since the early early 90s um 
the, uh, some people inside the Lib Dems are, are very fixated with a particular issue, which is this idea that the other two main part, the other two main parties have, and still have, despite all the new voter volatility, a core vote that they can rely on in time of trial and in time of election. And there are people in the Lib Dems who are just obsessed with this idea of building a Lib Dem core vote. Tim's smiling because how many times have we heard this um, on panels that we both suffer on? Um, you know. This is obviously because, you know, 2017, some of those disastrous European elections during the coalition years, the Lib Dem vote share was down to 7%. You know, that's really hard to function at 7%. A lot of them are quite cheered up by the MRP poll from YouGov last week, because even though it looked bad in terms of only putting on one seat, there were lots of second, healthy second places, and also the vote share was up to 14%. And of course, as we know from the SNP in Scotland, if you can concentrate a vote share healthily under first past the post, you can actually put in a decent result on the night. So that's why they're kind of pivoting in the last few days of the campaign to, you have to vote for us here to reduce Boris Johnson's majority or deprive him of it. Um, but anyway, so I, I remain slightly more skeptical about this idea that there's a great opportunity to build a Lib Dem core vote, not least because we're going into this era of greater voter volatility. So it seems sort of counterintuitive. Um, on article revoke, yes, I'm not a fan of the policy uh, after the heckling experience, I feel a bit, bit vindicated. Um, uh, and I think it's, it, it's not working for, 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 for the very good reason that it sounds sort of as if you want to ignore the last three and a half years of British political <laughs> history, but also because I think the Lib Dems have one role in this campaign, and that is to be the people who've not gone bonkers. And the problem with saying, I, Joe Swinson, am going to be prime minister, and when I'm prime minister, I'm going to cancel three years of history and take you back in a time machine. It sounds like as if you too have gone bonkers. And I think that's been a real problem for them. They're still picking up lots of moderate Tories where they need to. They're really struggling to pick up moderate Labour Remainers. And that's going to be very difficult for them on the night. I should stop because Jill is making eyes at me. You should stop because there's going to be a lot of time for discussion afterwards. And we want to hear from Chris whether he recognises the place that Tim thinks his Conservative Party is moving to, or whether he thinks that actually this is a temporary phase, pick up some voters, pass the Brexit party, go, win an election, and then conveniently shed off that skin and become a one-nation Tory party again, uh, just without David Gork and Philip Hammond. Anyway. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and, uh, I mean, in direct answer to that question, um, I think the Conservative Party is doing what the Conservative Party does, which is it's trying to win an election, and what happens after the election might be a very different thing. Um, so what I thought I would do, um, uh, if I may, is just talk a little bit about, I think, what the strategy is for the election and where I think we are. Um, what this election is actually about, which I think always, isn't always quite um, what people think it is, uh, and then uh, the third thing as a three-part list as a speechwriter uh, to say where what that means about where we go next. and. Um, uh, and just for a bit of context, uh, while it is true that I often get introduced as uh, Theresa May's former director of strategy, um, which uh, indeed uh, I am, um, I've, next year will be the sort of 20th year when I've been working sort of closely with the Conservative Party, uh, so I've been in Westminster politics for a long, long time. Um, and so I know the party quite well, and in the work I do now, much I'm not working for them. Um, my, my agency is uh, supporting them in, in certain ways. So I have had some insight into the way that they are seeing uh, the campaign. Um, and I also uh, lived through the 2017 election campaign. Um, and so everything I say will be seen through that prism. And 
Uh, as ever, uh, I know you all think you're here for a conference, but actually this is part of my group therapy <laughs> ongoing. Um, and thank you to Anand and the team for pulling this together, because it's, it's good for me to get it uh, all, all off my... It's good to talk, it's good to talk. Um, but look, I think where we are, uh, and just to pick up some of the points that have been made, is, is um, that uh, the Conservative Party at the moment under Boris Johnson is pursuing really the strategy that uh, Theresa May should have pursued in 2017 and, and didn't. Um, and so I recognise a lot of it. Um, and what does that mean? Well, firstly, um, what's striking is that Boris Johnson is positioned himself in this campaign as the change candidate. So often in elections you have sort of one party arguing for change, another party arguing for, you know, stick with it, don't change horses midstream, etc., etc. Boris Johnson in this election has been very clear to say that he actually is the change. Um, and he's not the, the change that Jeremy Corbyn offers, which is, you know, uh, sort of out here, extreme and mad and all that kind of stuff, as the Tories would put it. But he offers change nonetheless. And there he's therefore running against uh, nine years of Conservative-led government. And that is a deliberate strategy. Um, you know, they don't, uh, for example, seek to defend austerity particularly. They sim simply seek to move on from it and talk about the benefits of, of the upside now that we've been through that process. Things like that. But that's a critical strategic decision um, which uh, Theresa got wrong in 2017 and which I think Boris Johnson has got right. And he's made that decision because he recognises that the referendum in 2016, yes, was a vote about our relationship with Europe, but it was about so much more and it was about people uh, calling for change in a whole raft of other areas. Um, and so much as the manifesto this time around uh, is wisely not as detailed as it was in 2017, um, there's enough in there to neutralise some of the attack lines from Labour and to offer a sense of kind of where we're going. So the critical uh, point at which I thought I think they're going to get this right was when early on in the campaign they started talking about, yes, get Brexit done, but then they said, unleash Britain's potential. And it was that, that caveat, that sort of second clause to the strap line that thought, right, they get this. They get that this is all about representing change and standing for, for change. And clearly they think Boris Johnson could do that in a way that Theresa couldn't because you know, he hasn't been a long-standing member of cabinets over those years and things like that. So he can in himself embody uh, that, that change message. So I think they're getting that right. Um, what we all know, of course, is that the strategy overall is fundamentally to unite the Leave vote uh, and the centre-right coalition, um, and then to hope that the uh, other side sort of remains split. And this is where I think uh, the Liberal Democrat position is interesting, um, because much as uh, Joe Swinton is unlikely to be the Prime Minister uh, in a few days' time, she may yet, as a result of her fairly poor performance, get to decide who the Prime Minister is. Um, you know, when we went into 2017, we just accepted the fact that the Lib Dems would perform fairly well and we might lose some seats to them. That was a given. Um, and indeed, it was sort of essential because it would stop Labour uh, gaining certain seats. Um, and it didn't happen. And part of the story of 2017 was that uh, the Liberal Democrats underperformed and Labour were able to squeeze them and pick up the votes. We're starting to see a little bit of that again. You know, the Liberal Democrats, again, have not performed in the way that the Conservatives calculated they would, and you're seeing this return to two-party politics, and that's really bad for the Conservatives. They don't want that. Um, now, we're not seeing it to the same numbers as we saw in 2017, um, but if it were to continue, 
um, we might end up in a situation where um, the Conservatives fall short of a majority. If they fall short of a majority, it's very, very difficult to think how they would put a governing coalition together. And you then turn to the other side, and at that point, however many seats they have, Joe Swinson might then suddenly have uh, a choice to make about who she's going to support for Prime Minister. And she said she won't support Jeremy Corbyn, so you know, who then would it be? So the sort of bizarre situation of Joe Swinson not being the Prime Minister, but potentially choosing the Prime Minister, is for me, and for the Conservatives, the nightmare scenario. Um, but we're not seeing that um, quite enough yet, that, that momentum for Labour. And I think that brings me to my sort of second point, which is kind of what is this election really about? And of course, as we all know, right, it's about Brexit. Everyone sort of gets that. But Brexit isn't enough. And Brexit wasn't enough last time, and it isn't enough this time. And for me, what I think the most significant thing is, is that actually this election is really a referendum on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And if the red wall that people talk about does collapse and move to the Conservatives, that's as much as anything because people are rejecting Jeremy Corbyn and his style of leadership as about what the Conservatives are offering and as about Brexit. Um, if you saw Channel 4 News on Monday night and the focus groups that my old colleague James Johnson conducted for them, really fascinating. Former Labour voters from 2017 all now saying they just didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, they didn't trust him, and therefore they were prepared to support an Etonian Conservative, which is bizarre in many ways. But I think back to that campaign in 2017, in the moment when one of the lead strategists, a guy called Mark Texter, came over to me, and we were struggling then to think about how to talk about Jeremy Corbyn. And Mark Texter said, look, we've done the research, and the line is that Jeremy Corbyn isn't Labour. And that's the line that works. And we didn't have enough time in 2017 to talk about that, but that's what the Conservatives are running this time around. And the focus groups from Monday night demonstrate kind of what that, the impact that that can have. And so to come to the question about what next, I think it's a mistake, or potentially a mistake, to think we're seeing a grand realignment of voters. In this election, if the Conservatives get through, it's because they've got the benefit of the doubt, Brexit has helped, but Jeremy Corbyn was the Labour leader. And I don't think they can think necessarily that they've therefore secured a long-term governing coalition like that. And I think you'll see Boris Johnson, depending on the numbers, and all my answers to your next questions are going to start with the line, it depends on the numbers. If they get through, depending on the numbers, I think you'll see him pivot back more towards one nation agenda, which is who I think he really is. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, Sienna, quite a lot of interesting issues for you to pick up from Tim's analysis of Labour's ability to morph and, uh, and Chris's sort of idea that this is actually a referendum on Jeremy Corbyn rather than a decision on Brexit, getting it done or not. So what's the perspective from Labour? So I'm going to talk a bit about the effect it, that Brexit has had, obviously, on the Labour Party uh, and in this election and 2017 election and, and after this election as well. So the first thing is that internally, Brexit has definitely exposed rifts within the Labour Party. And it's also exposed to the wider public the inner workings of the Labour Party. I edit a site called Labour List. We're all about the inside track of the Labour Party. And we report on very niche things, uh, selections and conference votes and all that sort of thing. And all of this has been kind of talked about in the mainstream press so much in a way that 
it kind of uh, is a bit annoying as Labour List editor because that's my thing. Um, and everyone's been talking about this really niche stuff. So it's really exposed, and I think there's, this is something actually that a lot of people haven't really got to grips with yet, but it's exposed at the fact that the Labour left, yes, has taken control of the Labour Party in terms of the leadership, increasingly in terms of the parliamentary party with the new selections, a lot of last-minute selections in safe Labour seats or Labour-held seats. Um, I don't know what's, what's safe anymore. But, um, and the Labour left is not monolithic. It is... It's broad, it's, it's varied, it's, you know, the, the argument within the Labour Party in terms of the grassroots is often tankies versus trots. It's about, are you pro-EU or anti-EU? What tradition do you come from, the Labour Party? And Jeremy Corbyn comes from a certain tradition that actually wasn't very well considered when he was elected in 2015 and, and 2016. And that's not something people were thinking about for some reason in the Labour Party, there were a lot of people who were on the left of the Labour Party, but also fiercely pro-EU. So all of that stuff has now come out more and more, and also more and more since 2017, because at that time we could more successfully pivot to the domestic agenda, and this time that isn't quite possible. So it's shown also the power of the membership, because, yes, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has in the past been, been anti-EU, to what extent it's uh, the electoral impact of taking a certain Brexit position or that, or that belief system from the past that has affected his decisions in terms of how to handle Brexit as a Labour leader. Um, whatever that comes from, it's come up against the wishes of pro-EU left-wing Labour members. Um, so electorally, Brexit has also been very difficult for Labour. It's kind of put a label, though, onto a lot of problems that it has had for many decades. So, I mean, just like in Scotland, it, this stuff was rumbling under the surface, it was going on, it was going on for years, and then at some point, that's it, there was a drop. And, and that whole, the, all of those problems were exposed in one election. And that's the risk for the Labour Party in terms of the fact that we have an ageing population, and increasingly Labour is reliant on the votes of young people, and the fact that, you know, small towns versus cities, Labour's vote is increasingly metropolitan. So all of that is difficult, and all of that is reflected in the Brexit divisions, and the fact that Labour is caught between being a Remain party and a Leave party, or, you know, as Jeremy Corbyn would prefer, the party of, of the many, not the few, the 99%, and not buying into this false divide that has been drawn with a Brexit line between 48 and 52. So Brexit has exacerbated problems and it's clarified existing problems. And, and perhaps it's, it can be kind of a useful tool in that way for people thinking about the future of the Labour Party and what it means to be Labour and, and just you know the nature of its MPs, for instance. A lot of members are going to be focusing on having uh, working people being elected as MPs at this election rather than professional politicians and, and all that kind of resentment from, from the new Labour years. So this desire to have uh, an agenda for the 99% rather than 48 or 52 has produced this radical manifesto at this election which goes much further than the 2017 one. Unfortunately, it's been interpreted as having a bit of a scattergun approach. It kind of has you know, this sort of give away a day 
thing that people have been talking about on the doorstep that does come up. It seems like every single day they, they announce a new policy that would save households thousands of pounds a year. Today's policy, today's policy announcement, big speech. Um, you know, free broadband. I mean, I've been talking to MPs and, well, candidates uh, and members, and, and a lot of the feedback from that is that, you know, the broadband policy, people are keen on fast broadband for all, but not free broadband for all. So that kind of thing has been difficult for the Labour Party, but the point is that Labour... Uh, people at the top of the Labour Party and the people who've been writing that manifesto, and, and obviously the members, because they had a huge part in putting that manifesto together, believe that there is so much wrong now with this country and how it works that, that there needs to be a solution to every problem in that manifesto. Unfortunately, that makes it difficult to say, well, you can remember these five things from our manifesto and no more. I mean, that, that sort of, in terms of political messaging, that's a real challenge because... The Labour slogan is, it's time for real change. But there is so, so much to change in that manifesto. Um, so in terms of Brexit, I think going forward, it has been really, really difficult. It was, it was difficult in 2017, but we could, we could pivot to austerity, all of those issues. It's been much more difficult this time because, as Chris said, Boris Johnson has been the change candidate as well as Jeremy Corbyn being the change candidate and being the change candidate in a much more kind of direct sense and in a way that is far more understandable to people who haven't been closely following every single policy development of the Labour Party despite the widespread coverage of, of all of those tiny developments. Um, but I think going forward that Brexit is going to be it's going to become easier for the Labour Party because it's going, to be, it's going to be easier to oppose for a start. That's already started in terms of Boris Johnson taking over and then hardening that Brexit deal. That has made things much simpler for the Labour leadership because there's a lot of people who have you know, very principled objections to the idea that we should just ignore the 2016 vote and just go for another referendum. And I think that's, that's not something to be ashamed of. I think that the, the debates that we had over that were completely necessary. And the fact that the wider Labour movement were involved, that means trade unions as well as those pro-EU members, was entirely necessary. And that's why the position that Labour has come to now is just inevitable, I think. Um, sorry. If, so it's going to become easier, I think, because the deal is harder but also because if Brexit gets done, Labour loses, then the impact of that will obviously make it easier to say, well, you know, we were right and they were wrong and all of that stuff. But also if Labour loses, there's going to be a new leadership, whether, whether that's a media or whether that kind of concludes in September, the next conference. And it's likely that that leadership is not going to be from London. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing playing out in this Brexit situation is the fact that, I mean, so many... Shadow cabinet members are from like a square mile, it seems. Like Camden, Islington, and Hackney. They're all from that place. And it, you know, I was born in Camden and I still live there. But it's ridiculous the fact that so many of our top figures are from there. So we're going to see, you know, Laura Pidcock, Rebecca Long Bailey, those kind of northern voices definitely come to the fore. Those are the front runners in terms of that leadership contest that we'll, that we'll see if Labour loses over the next year. So, and those two figures, Angela Rayner, Laura Pidcock, also RLB, they're going to be focusing on this message of uniting working people. And by that, they don't mean just the working class in terms of people 
living, you know, in poverty and, and working in poverty, but everyone who relies on work to earn their money. So that's what's going to change in terms of the future of the Labour Party. And, and that's, I think, some of the impact that Brexit has had as well. That was brilliant. Thank you very much, Sienna. So you've had some really interesting insights into where, whatever. So I'm going to go straight away and take some crops of questions. Um, and we'll take them in threes. Uh, somebody said this was the sign of an inadequate chair. Um, I don't agree. I hope I'm right. Anyway, so let's go and get some questions. And I've got some other questions. So let's go to the two gentlemen sitting next to each other. And then somebody over the far end over there. Yes. Thanks. Um, Keith Best, Secretary of the European Movement. Also, so you know where I'm coming from, an ex-Conservative MP. Um, uh, I, I really, this is a question to, uh, to, to Chris in a way. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the change in the Conservative Party, and we saw a lot of the evidence of that this morning as well, in facts and figures, how it's reorientated itself around uh, the non-university degree, sort of more working people. Um, and then you say, Chris, that, uh, you know, Boris will turn back into being a one nation conservative. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 75 referendum campaign. Um, also, uh, you know, the conservatives have broadly been a pro-European party. Uh, Theresa May was, um, not Theresa May, Margaret Thatcher was the one who conceived the single market and the concept of majority voting, so it would actually go, go through. Uh, how that shift in the change is actually fundamental to the very core and nature of the Conservative Party. Do you see that shift in its support remaining? In which case, how is it going to be possible to actually get into that back again, back into that one nation conservatism? Okay, thank you very much. Keep questions short. I'm sure there are lots of people who want to ask questions. Yes. George Ferguson, former civil servant. Taking advantage of none of you being politicians, can I throw a double hypothetical question at you? If the, the best realistic, semi-realistic uh, Remainer hopes came through, so no Conservative majority next week, uh, a referendum and a, uh, uh, a pro-Remain, yeah. uh, what happens after that? I mean, it sounds to me there's a fair chance of confusion, but I'd be intrigued in your uh, taking it from then. Okay, that's a very useful question. And I think there was somebody, is that going to take forever to get to? I should probably crop them. There's somebody, the nearest person in that side. Yep, gentleman there. Do you want a question? Yeah, and then we'll go to the next. Um, yep. I know that everyone's trying to guess the result next Thursday, but could, could I ask you to think about a different scenario where Boris gets a majority of, say, 20, and we're in February, and uh, we've left the EU. How do each of the three parties position themselves? Does Brexit, everyone says that people won't take interest in trade negotiations once we're out. Do the Lib Dems become the party of rejoin? Does, does Labour sort of stop talking about Brexit? And how do each of the parties react to that scenario? Okay, brilliant questions. Let's, uh, let's get stuck into them for starters. So, um, Chris and Tim, um, the Conservative Party, as you see it in the future, it's, you know, pivoted away from its European roots. It's got the Brexit Party sort of sitting there lurking. Nigel Farage probably hasn't left the stage completely. Can it really reorientate? And I think a point Anand makes quite a lot is, what's the difference in the Conservative Party if its MPs are actually 
MPs for a lot of these sort of northern red wall seats who have a very different agenda to, you know, the conservative seats they've just written off that were former quite well off Londonish seats that they've built their majority around. Chris. Um, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a great question, and uh, the answer is it depends on the numbers next week. Um, so, um, but, but, no, no, but, 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 but seriously, the, um, so when I was uh, working as director of strategy uh, at number 10 uh, for, for that year between 16 and 17, um, the thing I was really fighting against was the Conservative Party becoming the Brexit Party. Uh, I, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want that to happen because I felt uh, that... Uh, much as that would be a good enough strategy to win an election, it wouldn't be a good enough strategy to win the election after that and the election after that. So precisely as you're indicating, to, you know, uh, basically the Conservative Party now moving towards uh, having an older demographic uh, voting, voting for it, Brexit being this thing that sort of churns it all up and, and gives people permission to vote for the Conservative Party. But as I say, I don't see it as a grand realignment. I think people uh, in many of those seats will be lending their votes uh, to the Conservative Party, but not necessarily buying into the Conservative Party. Um, so I tried to sort of fight against it, and you know maybe part of the story of the 2017 election was the competing strategies that went on as a result of that. But I think things have changed pretty fundamentally in, in politics being three years on since the referendum. And I think we're now in a much better place for the Conservative Party to run a strategy that says, actually, let's just get through this election, maximise our vote, um, and then we can then broaden our appeal, and then it comes down to the personality of the, the Prime Minister. So I joke about the numbers. It, the, the numbers really matter. If Boris Johnson can secure a majority, and if he can secure a majority of, say, I think something like 25-plus, then you know it's for his, him to do what he will with it. And the MPs at that point, wherever they're from and whatever their background, they will feel an incredible debt of loyalty to him personally for getting them in the House of Commons. And at that point, I think he then has license uh, to roam more widely. And, you know, I mean, I know Boris Johnson, and, you know, the truth is, you know, I think he does want a much bigger legacy than Brexit. Uh, we, all, we all know what he went through in the, in the referendum campaign leading up to it and the agonising over the decision. You know, he doesn't want Brexit to be his legacy. He, he wants a big domestic uh, agenda, uh, reform agenda. You know, we all know he loves to build things and bridges and infrastructure spending, things like that. that. That's the politician he is at heart. So with the big enough majority, I think that's the Boris Johnson you get. So ironically, if he doesn't get a majority or when he gets a small majority, that's when you get the Boris Johnson who is slightly more in hock to the ERG and to that side of the party. Um, so it's clearly in all our interest that he gets a big majority. Basically. Tim. Yeah, uh, shades of the. I'm not sure you're supposed to be campaigning here, but anyway, but. Shades of the 2010 leaders' um, debate. Uh, I agree with Chris in, in many ways, uh, apart from uh, a couple of things. One is that I agree with his point about um, uh, the new Conservative members being, to some extent, you know, um, beholden to Boris Johnson, but I do think gratitude is the most perishable quantity in politics. And I think uh, if, as uh, Anand, I think, is going to be writing about um, quite soon, you know, we, we find Conservative Party members uh, of Parliament elected for seats where, because of Brexit, local industries closed down, for example. And you can think of, I think Alan was talking to me earlier about um, Jaguar Land Rover in, in Wolverhampton. You know, you, you could get problems uh, there. But as Chris says, that, you know, th those problems will be acute if it's a very small Conservative majority, less acute if it's so a So, Tim, does loyalty decay? Is there a sort of function that 
you know, in the first year, which is the critical time for Brexit, yeah. can he rely on loyalty with people who might actually be defecting four years out? Well, there's a, there's an excellent scholar at Queen Mary University of London called Philip Cowley, who many <laughs> of you will have heard of, and and actually um, it seems to be t- decaying a lot faster <laughs> than it used to, uh, I think. Um, uh, the the other uh, point, I think, um, well, there's there's one smaller point, which is I'm not sure Boris Johnson actually does does build things. He likes to talk about building things, but whether he does actually ever manage it is a is another question. Uh, just thought I'd get that dig in. Uh, and I, 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 but I, I mean, generally, I agree with the you know the the ability of the Conservative Party, you know, having studied it for years and years and years, to be able to pivot um, back uh, to to whatever it wants to. Uh, pivot back to. But I I just wanted to answer the specific question about what happens if we get a hung parliament and we don't get a Boris Johnson government and we get a uh, a, a Labour minority um, government, at least potentially. Um, What do politicians do at that point? Um, It's easy, I think, to say um, that that Boris Johnson, you know, has sort of said he would die in a ditch rather than um, uh, go for a, a second referendum. But Boris Johnson has offered to die in a ditch on a number of occasions and, and has never actually died in that ditch. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me, and Chris might be able to say something because he knows him, obviously, Beth and I. It wouldn't surprise me, and it wouldn't surprise me, given the historical record of the Conservative Party, that Boris Johnson might make a big, open and comprehensive offer to Joe Swinson, and that might include a second referendum. So, you know, don't write that possibility off. I certainly wouldn't. Okay. Well, I was going to go through the scenarios, but I'm going to go straight to Miranda. Joe Swinson gets the call in Tim's circumstances from Boris Johnson. What does Joe Swinson say? So if there's a hung parliament, I think it's much more likely that you're looking at a conversation between Jeremy Corbyn and Nicholas Sturgeon. Um, and in fact, I would be amazed if a deal hasn't really probably already been done and it's just in the top drawer waiting for the right moment. So I actually, um, I appreciate the, the delightful sort of dramatic irony that, that uh, Chris set up for us about Joe Swinson having a terrible night but still, still being the deci- decider of, of the nation's fate. But I actually think it's Nicola Sturgeon who mm. could, could well be deciding the nation's fate. Um, in terms of what would the other parties do to get the, the referendum, I mean, absolutely, this is the key question. Mm. I th- you know, there's no way that having so categorically ruled out a governing deal mm. with either Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson that Joe Swinson could get away with with that. Mm. But I think that a lot of the opposition parties, you know, if we have a real mess of a result, then I think a lot of the parties will be in very intensive talks about, uh, you know, trying to secure this, this referendum. I also think it's possible they won't be able to agree again and that we'd be right back where we were when the election was called. I actually think that's really quite quite a possible outcome, in which case you might well be looking at another general election before you're looking at a referendum. I don't want to terrify everybody, but I mean, you I might, do think You might also that's be looking at Emmanuel Macron saying he's sick of us and chucking us out of the EU. At the yes, abso- absolutely. And um, also, it, even if Boris Johnson does get his majority, somehow we've all sort of forgotten that the other conversation that we've all been admired in for the last 18 months is, oh my God, no deal, with a, with a, you know, a deadline approaching us. And we're going to be right back into that as well. Because having... The one thing, you know, the, I get Tim's point completely about all these ditches that Boris Johnson was supposed to die in and miraculously saved himself from falling on his sword repeatedly. But actually r- saying that we definitely will leave by the end of 
next year, come what may. I mean, this is quite a commitment to make. So we'll be staring no deal in the, in the face, which means everyone will be back to playing the roles they were playing in Parliament a couple of months ago. Except there'll be quite different personnel, which I think is one of the interesting very, things very about true. the composition of Parliament. Sienna, how far is uh, Jeremy Corbyn sort of likely to go in terms of Nicola Sturgeon said, when push comes to shove... You know, if he sees those keys of Downing Street dangling away and all he has to do is agree to an independence referendum on my timetable, not his, he'll crack. I know how to run a minority government. Um, will he crack? Will we uh, get a deal with Labour and the SNP and basically throw the Scottish Labour Party under, under a bus? So I uh, went to Scotland last weekend. I went to Glasgow and Edinburgh and I visited a few seats and interviewed some candidates and did some door knocking just to find out what was going on up there. It, they were actually surprisingly more, more optimistic than I thought they would be. And a big part of that is the fact that on the doorstep um, in, in Glasgow and in Edinburgh, they, they are saying to SNP voters, you know, well, if you want to keep the SNP out, you have to vote Labour, there's no other choice. It's, it's very much kind of a, a negative offer in, in some ways when they're not talking about policy. It's in order to keep the SNP out, you have to vote vote Labour in, in places like Glasgow Southwest, where it's very, very marginal between Labour and SNP. Um, I think Labour has kind of rolled the pitch for uh, basically offering huge investment in Scotland in order to de delay that uh, Scottish independence referendum. So, you know, just don't want to totally compare this with the Tories, but that, you know, they're huge offer to the DUP. You could see something similar in terms of this, we will give this huge, huge investment. And th I mean, that would be obviously benefit the SNP in, in, in other ways in terms of their kind of record and domestic issues as well up in Scotland to, to offer that in order to because Jeremy Corbyn has said there's no way that it would happen in the early years. And then that was specified as the, the first two years. So they would have to uh, get a majority in the next Scottish elections. And so that they want that referendum to be pushed back to at least 2022 beyond that. And in order to delay that happening, it will be about money. Okay, so get your checkbook out. Uh, there's a lot of money around in this election. Let's take George's scenario. So he has, uh, has his triple hypothetical, I think, uh, where we end up, in a, after a second referendum, we're ending up remaining. I think this probably poses most issues for the... Conservative Party. Chris, what happens in this scenario to the Conservative Party? Goodness, what a scenario uh, <laughs> that is. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think uh, in, in that scenario, uh, which I, I think I find hard to, to see, I think if there is a second referendum, I think there's a very good chance the country votes the same way. One reason why I kind of thought originally it would have been sensible for the Conservative Party way back when to have endorsed the idea because uh, they could have got Brexit through in that manner. But say it were to happen, I think the Conservative Party then does become uh, almost fully uh, the, the Brexit Party at, at that point. And not just, again, on this issue of, of our relationship with Europe itself, um, but on all of the other sort of cultural and uh, values-driven issues uh, uh, underneath it. And we see sort of them already sort of playing to some of those things now. I would imagine in that scenario there'll be... Uh, a sort of a hardcore of people who will feel uh, aggrieved uh, and mo uh, energized uh, by by that, and they will tap into that scenario. And I think it then brings that 
even greater clarity to the to the political system in terms of where people stand. Um, so it's probably for the Conservative Party that scenario not a bad uh, recruiting sergeant for the next election, uh, whenever that might be. But I, I guess that's where they would end up. Um, I don't think the debate would just end and they'd move on. They would they would use it as a as a catalyst for the next election. I guess. Okay, so Chris is dangling the threat of neverendums to us on uh, on that scenario. Let's take the other scenario we had that. Boris Johnson wins majority of 20, can get the withdrawal agreement bill through. The UK is then no longer an EU member state, and it stops being Remain. It now becomes Rejoin Miranda. Where does that leave the Liberal Democrats? What do they do? Uh, what you mean, is it a problem to be the Rejoin party? And is that where you reposition? Do you go and become a single-issue Rejoin party, or do you accept, move on... I don't think it's much of a repositioning, though, is it? It's that events have moved on around you. Um, I, I, I have a lot of colleagues at the FT who think this is a sort of real problem for the Lib Dems. I don't necessarily think it's their biggest, the biggest of their problems because it seems to me quite clear that if, uh, you know, if you end up that we've left and you've, particularly, as I've said, if you've also, again, got another year of staring no deal in the face, you know, your purpose as the voice of the pro-European, the worried pro-European, and also the voice of business, by the way, since the Conservative Party has sort of completely sort of abandoned the field as the party of, of the economy, you've got quite a strong platform, uh, in my view. I mean, I was never in favour of a second referendum because I'm a sort of natural compromiser, but I think even people who were in favour of a compromise, if we're now stuck with a withdrawal agreement with some huge holes in it and potential no deal, will we'll actually get even more enraged about the situation and even more worried. So I think that's fine. I think, you know, la lutte continue in that, in that sort of scenario. So Sienna, in that scenario, what does Labour do? Does Labour actually get really stuck in? Do we see Barry Gardner on the radio Every morning, talking <laughs> Love about the Baza on the today program, trade deals and the nerdery to come. I mean, how much is that thing, or how much does Labour basically just sort of move on and decide it wants to fight across all this other exciting domestic agenda that Boris Johnson is unleashing as part of its legacy? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it does depend what Boris Johnson is doing uh, with the rest of his domestic, with the yeah his domestic agenda, but um, um. Can you repeat the question? So the question is, basically, if, if we've withdrawn, so we've withdrawn, we're in phase two, whatever, actually, what happens? Does the issue go away? Do we sort of, you know, just let it sort of fester down there? It depends we, how uh, exciting big battleground? Labour can make this discussion about, about trade deals. I mean, obviously, this whole campaign is this commonly received uh, wisdom that Labour doesn't want to talk about Brexit on the doorstep. Actually, it really does. And activists are going out and, and actually bringing up Brexit on the doorstep. They enjoy talking about it because... In Remain seats, there's had there's been this advantage of, well, you can't go down this undemocratic route of revoking Article 50, and, and instead we're the only party that is offering another referendum, so vote for us. Fine, that's working very well, and people are finding that they're flipping Lib Dems through that. And then in Leave seats, you know, Jeremy Corbyn obviously has been greatly emphasising uh, the, the NHS for sale line and increasingly, I mean, obviously this week Trump's visit has helped with that as well. And there's there's been, you know, more and more documents released um, talking about not just NHS, but also drug prices being hiked. So all of that is great for the Labour Party and it's about whether they can continue that discussion. And obviously, 
it depends what happens with those talks, basically. But it is going to be quite difficult because, I mean, as Tim said, in terms of Brexit being a, a tangible thing and its impact being tangible, that's, that's quite difficult because it's more likely to be just a, a slow kind of loss of growth and it's, it's going to be difficult to quantify that. So, Tim, just a question. We'll go back to the audience in a second. We've seen a, a record number of defections during this parliament, lots of people deciding, and we sort of vaguely assume that actually the result of defecting is going to be you lose your seat in parliament. The relatively few of the defectors come back. It may not be true, but assuming that's true, um, do people just decide, well, I've got to stick and change my party from the inside? Or do we, does perhaps one of these scenarios actually trigger, this is finally the moment that we do have to do something big and realign? You know, your scenario was Labour hunkering down, whatever, not changing. The Conservative Party maybe changing a bit, maybe looking over but a very different composition of the Conservative Party. So uh, is realignment on the agenda in the next couple of years or is it, you know, for the birds? Well, I mean, I think obviously one of the big obstacles is is not only what's going to happen, presumably to the people who stand as independents this time, most of whom will probably lose, uh, and uh, what happens to those Conservative MPs who've defected to the Lib Dems. Um, you know, that, that might make a, a, a bit of difference. Um, but standing behind all that is the electoral system. Uh, and, I, and I think for many MPs, that is the big obstacle. They, they look at the electoral system and think, you know, even if we were to break away, for example, if, if Labour does choose, you know, one of the, um, you know, either Lord Pidcock or uh, Rebecca um, Long-Bailey, nearly got it wrong there, um, then, then, you know, there might be some Labour MPs who, who think there's no future for us uh, here. Uh, However, if you look at the historical record, what tends to happen is that the bulk of MPs stay behind and, and fight or just literally just hunker down, uh, actually, as you put it, and just hope for something better uh, to, to come along eventually and for another electoral defeat to actually spur uh, the membership and other MPs into actually changing the party. And that does happen over time i mean you know we always assume that electoral defeat will you know and a big electoral defeat would will, will cause parties to change but it doesn't tend to make them change as quickly as perhaps it should do rationally if you look at the party and jane did a lot of work on, on this if you look at the conservative party after 1997 it took it took until 2005 really for them to kind of get the message uh and it took labor in fact, um, you know, slightly less time in the 1980s to get the message, but it still couldn't kind of pull itself over the line until the, the 1990s. So I, I think if, if I were, and this is never going to happen, uh, an MP, uh, I would probably just hope I could stay in there and either begin fighting or, or just, you know, hope that eventually the, the electoral... Um, mathematics will actually, you know, make itself realise. I think there could have been a realignment uh, in Labour, but I, I think it's been too late for that. I think there there was a point, perhaps when Jeremy Corbyn was re-elected, where maybe 150 Labour MPs, or those, I think it was 172 Labour MPs who voted against him in the vote of no confidence, could have just walked and become another Labour Party and become the official opposition. But, you know, because they didn't have you know, the nerve to do that. And I can quite understand why they didn't have the nerve to do that. I, th I think that possibility is over. Okay, but Miranda wanted to chip in quickly. 
Now we get yeah, only because this is my favourite subject oh, in the sorry, world. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I think actually there could be quite interesting things going on because there's sort of the sort of plotting and whispering about new centre parties and reviving the centre left never stops, even when it looks really unpromising. I think it's very interesting, as Tim has said, how many moderate Labour MPs have stuck around in a kind of Gatesgalite way to kind of fight and fight again for the party that they love, as it were. But how much fighting are they actually prepared to do? And certainly when you look at it from the voters' point of view, I know lots of people who are voting Labour on the basis that they've asked their local Labour MP who's not a Corbynite and has no Jeremy Corbyn on the leaflets, etc. If I vote for you, will you get rid of this man and save your party? So, you know, I think for the voters, it's quite difficult deciding you know, how to jump on this and to what the future of the Labour Party is. Um, and having, I made a little film recently with Jane, in fact, on sort of whether there is fertile territory for new parties. And one of the, when we looked at why Change UK, for example, had failed, it was quite interesting. They were so centrist that they were almost ha impossible to define. They were right slap bang in the middle on left, right. And they were right slap bang in the middle on leave and remain and on uh, you know, sort of values being conservative or liberal. And so therefore people didn't really know what they were. So that's the big challenge for these, you know, this rump of abandoned moderate Labour people and for those who would like to vote for a party that had them in it and of which they were in charge. Okay, we're going to take a few more questions. I think there was... Let's go to the lady in the front here. And then... And then we'll hand it back behind. Yes. Um, hopefully quite a quick question. For those of us trying to plan when we sleep on election night, which particular results are the panel really looking out for? Okay, um, Tim, do you want to just answer that super quickly while we move the microphone back there? What's uh, your first bellwether seat? What time? Uh, well, Eastbourne in Sussex, only because it's where I live and where I grew up. That's not um, the right answer. It's a Tory Labour, uh, sorry, Tory uh, Lib Dem marginal, which the MRP has calculated uh, will go to the Conservatives, but which uh, I think living there might not. Uh, and then, partly because uh, my daughter lives there, Finchley and Golders Green, uh, because that will be interesting to see if the Lib Dems can come from virtually nowhere because of particular circumstances uh, to, to win and that And what's seat. the first first red wall seat that we look for? Oh, you're talking about that kind of really important, boring that. stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'll basically be the kind of stuff in the West Midlands. I mean, okay. that's that's normally where elections are won and lost, and I, I don't suppose it'll be very different this time. Okay, West Midlands, yes. And we'll take a bunch of questions now. We've got some people over here as well. There, is there only one mic? Yes. One of the main reasons that Trudeau won... The recent Canadian election, albeit with a minority, is because we, voters around Toronto, um, who are the key voters in Canadian elections, did not vote for the third party, the NDP. They lost a significant amount of support at the end. Why? Because left-wing and moderate voters did not want a conservative prime minister in Canada. Is there any likelihood of that happening here, given the antipathy to both major party leaders? In other words, deserting the third party in, in all cases. Thanks. Okay, third party squeeze. Let's come, I'm not sure. Let's go here and then to the lady there. Yes. Yeah. Um, to what extent is devolution going to shift the party alignment, given that we saw this morning from the figures from the BS the, the way in which it's fractionating across the country voting uh, behaviour, is devolution going to act as an accelerant to that? Okay, and then just along, if you could just pass it along to the lady in the middle of the row. 
We know that we have an extremely right-wing press in this country, and we know um, that it's paid for and it pays to dig Boris Johnson out of the various ditches that he's threatened to jump into and the bulldozers that he's threatened to lie down in front of as well. One of the things I haven't understood at all throughout this whole grisly process of the last two or three years, why is it so incompatible that Jeremy Corbyn should um, be in favour of staying in the EU but at the same time be highly critical of the EU? I worked in Brussels for many years and, and I also believe that there is a lot wrong with the way that the European Union has evolved and what it is currently doing. It is failing to do a lot of the things that it needs to do in order to improve not just the life of EU citizens, but the life of the world's population. So I think he's right to be critical of the institutions, but it's perfectly possible for him to think that and at the same time think that we should remain. I'm not sure that's, that, uh, that's really a question, unless you want to comment on that. Sienna, I think it's quite an interesting point, though, about the reform. Actually, the people who've got the biggest reform programme in the EU is the Green Party in this election. So uh, let's go to those two questions, then we'll come right, to the sort of squeeze of people who, at the end of the day, sort of suddenly decide that actually they don't want a right-wing prime minister. Chris, are you worried about the risk of a sort of squeeze there? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I think that's exactly the, the dynamic. So, uh, again, to uh, step back a couple of years, you know, the, what we saw, you know, what people forget about the 2017 election is that uh, Theresa May and the Conservatives actually, uh, even at the end, polled really highly. Uh, I mean, Theresa's votes uh, were incredible, actually, and, and you know, um, better than David Cameron could ever have dreamt of. Um, but what happened in that campaign was, uh, in my view, I should say, uh, that we ran a campaign such that we basically left the way open for somebody else to step in to the vacuum on the other side. And we, we ran a campaign that actually mobilised, helped to mobilise people to vote for Labour. Um, things like talking about fox hunting and stuff like this were all trigger issues that got people to actually go out uh, and vote Labour and th and move away from a position where they felt that Theresa May at the start of the campaign they were prepared to give her the benefit of doubt for being a different kind of Conservative. She then spent seven weeks basically proving that she was exactly the same kind of Conservative that they always feared she was, and therefore a lot of people voted Labour. And and you know Labour ran in a very effective campaign. Jerry Corbyn ran a very effective campaign as well. So don't take anything away from that. But I think we gave them a license to do that by the way we operated. So that is the danger this time. I don't think that always have fallen into that trap, and I also think the shine has come off Jeremy Corbyn slightly. But we are seeing a little bit of uptick in the polls for, for Labour. As I said earlier, the Liberal Democrats uh, are not performing at the way that I think the Conservatives hoped that they would. Um, so we're trying to be boosting them over the next few weeks. But then, <laughs> as always in, the, in these things, um, there's, there's arguments on both sides. This tightening in the polls helps the Conservatives now. They've now got a week to say, look, this could really happen. Jeremy Corbyn could be the Prime Minister on the 13th uh, of December. And, and therefore, uh, they're using that message and hammering that message. So um, all that by way of saying, yes, it's a very real concern. It's what the Conservatives are concerned about at the moment. Um, but at the moment, their tightening in the polls may just help them ever so slightly. So I'm quite interesting, uh, interested in this question about uh, what difference is devolution making? We had a, you know, a bit of profile with Adam Price, part of the Remain Alliance implied. We have the SNP, a bit quite familiar these days or whatever, obviously applying their own things, getting a bit more s sort of scrutiny on their domestic record, I think, you know, the Nicholas Sturgeon interview with Andrew Neil. Um, how is the sort of devolution politics playing out in this? Is it making any difference 
Obviously, Northern Ireland's always in its different box uh, already, so just not to forget about that. Well, I think, I think all three non-England bits of the UK are actually interesting from the point of view of the Remain Alliance, because actually mm. in Northern Ireland, there's a little Remain mm. Alliance going on as an attempt to try and remove the influence of the DUP because it was felt to, A, not represent the true mm. views of Northern Ireland in being such a hardline Brexit party, and also, you know, because to try and deprive Boris Johnson of his coalition options, which, as Tim has already said, are pretty minimal um, in the case of a hung, hung parliament. I think the funny thing about Scotland and Wales is we are only ever exposed in England to the leaders in a quite sort of superficial way where we see their and can judge their political skills. And I mean, I had countless people saying if only Nicola Sturgeon was standing candidates across England because she's, she's so possessed of such dramatically better political skills than any of the other leaders on show in this election, you know. But of course, if you live in Scotland, you might be rather more interested in his, her record in government, which is not great, not least as we saw yesterday in the PISA study on the education system, which was always fantastic in Scotland and is now really on the slide. So I think it's a bit strange. You know, it affects our dynamic in terms of our calculations about what happens in the House of Commons. But we're so horribly under equipped to judge how well those parties actually perform in there. I mean, the Lib Dems are actually in government in Wales, but you wouldn't know it. It's never mentioned. The Education Secretary in Wales is doing very dramatic things in higher education, but we don't know about it. So I think it's a bit of an odd sort of superficial way in which we've dealt with devolution, and we're not part of the same political conversation anymore, which really worries me. Um, Tim. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything uh, Miranda said. I mean, though, I suppose one point I would like to make, and it's a kind of historical canard that people often bring up, which is, you know, well, if, if Labour, as it were, quote-unquote, loses Scotland, it can never win again, which is actually nonsense, because when Labour's won uh, general elections in this country, it's tend to win them quite big. And in fact, it hasn't needed Scotland <laughs> in order to be able to govern. So, you know, it's, uh, I would just say in the long term, uh, it's worth thinking that if if the SNP you know continues its domination, the Conservatives actually manage to win a few seats and the Lib Dem hold on to a few seats, and Labour does really poorly. That doesn't mean that Labour can can never uh, win again uh, in in the UK. I think Labour's problems winning in the UK aren't very much to do with devolution. <laughs> They're to do with other things, and, and most obviously, as people have already said, I think, and I know some people in the audience won't like this, but. Uh, a lot of it is to do with Jeremy Corbyn, whether they like it or not. So, Chris, one of the really interesting things has been the Ashcroft polls, suggesting that actually a lot of Conservative members see independence of Scotland and Northern Ireland losing them as a price worth paying for Brexit. So has the Conservative Party basically given up its sort of ambition to be the Conservative and Unionist Party, as it still has on its leaflet sometimes? Um, I think this is um, interesting. I was going to chip in on this mm -hmm. point just to say that actually I, I think it is true that uh, there's definitely a strain within the Conservative Party membership and amongst the parliamentary party, uh, potential parliamentary party, that they would be prepared to see, um, you know, Scotland uh, go independent uh, if it meant that that was the price to pay for, for getting Brexit through. Um, but uh, what I think is really interesting uh, is that, you know, we w the Conservatives went into that ca this campaign pretty much accepting that they were going to lose a load of seats in Scotland. And everyone said, oh, you know, as soon as Ruth mm. Davidson resigned, you know, that's it, you're basically mm. gone. So where are you going to make up these other seats? Actually, their internal uh, polling uh, and research at the moment shows uh, still a pretty strong performance uh, amongst Scottish seats. There's a core unionist vote that is still prepared to turn out for the Conservative Party. So we might see better results there. Um, and I was also actually going to say that in, uh, in answer to the question there, on what seats to watch, I mean, I think Wales... 
um, is going to be really interesting uh, in this uh, election. And some of those northern seats in Wales will be interesting. And if you're interested in that, tune into the BBC Wales election coverage that I'll be on next next Thursday night <laughs> if you get bored of the national national picture. Um, anyway, but, but specifically to your question, I think, you know, ultimately, would a strong portion of the Conservative Party be prepared to allow Scottish independence in favour of Brexit? Yes. Um, but it's not looking like that's the choice at the moment that they're going to have to make. Okay, and finally, Sienna, I think it's been very interesting on in this devolution angle that that you know Adam Price was sort of signalling out Labour's track record in government mm. in Wales as actually you're making all these great claims on paper, but when you're in government, you're not doing that on social care, whatever. I mean, do you how do you see the battle going in Wales, where Labour's always been really dominant but seems to be coming under pressure in its sort of Welsh heartlands, as Chris was uh, signalling out? Yes, um, and as Miranda was saying, it is difficult when we were watching those debates and a lot of people can conclude that Adam Price was doing really well there, and so as was Nicola Sturgeon, obviously. And, I mean, it, they can. it's just a bit like in PMQs. It always comes up. Uh, Theresa May's t classic reply to any sort of NHS criticism was, well, what about your record in Wales? Um, and actually, a lot of the, the UK Labour front bench, those are the people who have been... Well, replacing Jeremy Corbyn in the debates recently, in the televised debates, but also responding at the dispatch box, don't have the depth of knowledge to respond to those kind of accusations in a really kind of, in a strong way that is actually necessary because our, the political conversation is so fragmented.